This is the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, episode 86. Welcome to the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, where we teach wealth building hacks for lawyers, engineers, and MBAs. I'm your host, Andrew Chen. All right, thanks so much again for tuning into the podcast. For today's episode, I invited another guest to come and share their tips and strategies and insights with us. So before we jump into that, as always, I want to invite you to join the private Hack Your Wealth Facebook group. You can access that at hackyourwealth.com FB. Definitely encourage you to join us there. It is a place for us to connect, have a two-way dialogue. I'm in there every single day, often multiple times a day, and I try to respond to every question and comment there. And it's a place where people can ask about financial independence, early retirement, tax strategies, real estate investing, side business income, online income, career transitions, career advice, or just ask about whatever's on their mind related to personal finance or career-related issues. Definitely encourage you to check that out. It's a great, friendly, helpful group of people, and we would love to have you there. Again, hackyourwealth.com slash FB. All right, let's jump into today's interview. My guest today is Wade Fowl. Wade is kind of a big deal in the retirement and financial planning community. He's one of the foremost thought leaders on retirement planning topics. He's a professor of retirement income in the Financial and Retirement Planning Program at the American College of Financial Services. He's also the co-director of the college's Center for Retirement Income, and he writes widely on, among other topics, safe withdrawal rates, retirement income, and asset allocation. He's published more than 60 peer-reviewed articles in academic and practitioner journals, and he's a contributing writer for Forbes, an expert panelist for The Wall Street Journal, and his research has been cited in The Economist, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal, among other publications. Wade is also the author of several books, which I'll link to in the show notes, and his latest book is The Retirement Planning Guidebook, Navigating the Important Decisions for Retirement Success. Wade holds a doctorate in economics from Princeton and is a chartered financial analyst. I'm super excited and honored to have Wade on the podcast today to share insights on safe withdrawal rates and asset allocation and why he thinks the 4% rule doesn't work anymore. Let's get to it. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Are you, uh, are you based in Dallas, Texas? Is that right? Uh-huh. I'm Texas born and bred. Not Dallas, but I grew up in Houston. And... Um, went to college in Austin. So virtually all my childhood was there. So definitely a a soft place in my heart (laughs) for Texas. Um, Awesome. I'd love to just start by, you know, learning a little bit more about your background. Like, you know, you're an economist by training, but you're most well known as a key thought leader in retirement and financial planning research. You're a professor at the American College of Financial Services, which is the degree and certification granting institution for financial advisors and planners. And in your work as the co-director um, of the Center for Retirement Income at the college. I, I wanted to just first start out just by learning a little bit more about, like, how did you get into the field of retirement income and retirement planning? Like, what was your path? And what got you interested as an economist in this area of research? Sure, sure. So I um, initially just really wanted to be an economist. And I knew before the end of high school that I was going to major in economics. And then I went to grad school in economics. Uh, as a part of that, I started looking more at social security and specifically my dissertation was on social security reform. And the in the early 2000s, the president, George W. Bush at that time, had a proposal to create personal retirement accounts. So I was testing how those would perform. And the idea was to carve a portion of social security payroll taxes and put them into individual accounts like 401ks instead of keeping it all in the traditional trust fund for social security benefits. So what I was doing to test that ultimately became really what I do today in terms of doing simulations to test different types of retirement strategies, looking at accumulation and savings and then distributions in retirement. And beyond that, it was really just a personal interest in terms of trying to look at my own financial planning and retirement planning and thinking about those issues Uh, After finishing grad school, I did spend 10 years in Japan and I worked at a university for government officials from mostly from emerging market countries. So while I was there, I looked more at pension funds, national pension funds in different countries, but then wanting to move back to the US and finding something marketable to do in the United States. That's when I really started shifting more towards financial planning, 
giving the CFA designation, learning more about investment theory. And then in doing that, I stumbled across this 4% rule for retirees. And I had a data set for 20 developed market countries. And really the whole starting point to get into financial planning specifically was looking at how that 4% rule performed with other countries' data in finding that it's really just an artifact of, well, the United States and Canada, but in the other 18 countries, there's no such thing as a 4% rule. And I got such a positive reception from that article that I made the full switch away from traditional economics and into financial planning, which it's a new field in financial services. I mean, in, in academics. <laughs> so it's, it's exciting to be a part of that. Yeah. I, uh, I, I was going to say that, that it's, um, it's less common. I, I, I'm not like an economist by training, but it seems like it's less common that um, academic economists are um, uh, are specializing in like retirement income and planning. So it's, it's great to see that you're a real pioneer in this area. How did you find your way to the American College? And like, what was the story for how you got, you know, eventually on, on the faculty with uh, the college? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, economics, I think it's the field where the difference between undergraduate economics and graduate economics is massive. I really liked undergraduate economics, but the graduate level becomes so theoretical and so mathematical that I was always looking for outlets that were more applied and practical. And that's where financial planning really is that applied sort of version of economics to help manage household financial problems. But right, I was uh, still in Japan and I I knew I wanted to get back to the United States. I I didn't really know how to best go about doing that other than I contacted all the programs listed on the CFP board's website for having (laughs) like financial planning programs to prepare for the CFP undergraduate degree programs. The American college actually wasn't even on that list because they don't have an undergraduate program, but they caught wind that I had sent this letter to probably 80 different universities. (laughs) And they reached out to me because they had an opening at the time. They were starting the RICP designation, which is the retirement income certified professional. And also at that time, this is about 2013, they were starting a PhD program in a financial and retirement planning. And so they had an opening for teaching and advising PhD students. So that was a great opportunity. And and that's how I ultimately ended up with the American College. (laughs) Oh, excellent. Okay, awesome. So what keeps the field exciting and interesting for you? I want to get to the substantive stuff um, you know, as well, obviously, but I, I, I'm just so curious to learn a little bit more about your background. Like what keeps the field, you know, of retirement financial planning, exciting and interesting for you, uh, you know, still after all these years? Well, um, part of it will be, and I'm sure this will come up in the conversation just with financial, financial finances in general, uh, we don't know what the future will bring. And so we don't, we have different opinions about that. And, and there's no clear framework for how to think through all that. And with retirement planning, being a new field, it's you can ask these basic questions and different people will give completely different answers and they'll believe there's just one way to do things. And if anyone disagrees, they'll think that person is conflicted or somehow just wrong or pigheaded. <laughs> and so it's that, that makes it interesting because we don't know what the answers are and we always need to look for uh, there new ideas, new approaches, better ways to build retirement strategies and being able to, to test that. And I really like writing the programs to simulate these different outcomes. And it, it's fun because there's a lot of nonlinearities that have to be programmed in, whether it's about something like a reverse mortgage or tax planning. They're complicated problems and just doing what I can to help find solutions. It keeps me motivated and active and <laughs> always something to do. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, it's a very dynamic field. Um, okay, so you know the four percent rule first introduced in the academic paper known as the Trinity Study in 1998 has attained this kind of like pop culture awareness, especially in uh, the fire community, which um, a lot of my audience is um, either pursuant of or already fired. And it basically suggests that you know if you calibrate your retirement withdrawals to start at four percent of your retirement date portfolio and then simply just grow that spend by inflation each year, there's an overwhelming chance you'll outlive your portfolio, you'll overcome the longevity risk over a 30-year retirement horizon based on looking at historical returns since about the mid-20s, mid-1920s, and assuming like a, I think it was like a 50-50 stock bond split. And you've written and commented in recent years that 
think you alluded to your, your, the paper that you wrote a moment ago, that the 4% rule is actually pretty flawed for modern times. And um, I'd love to start just by understanding, like, what are the fundamental flaws that you see with the 4% rule? And how has the world changed since the 4% rule was first introduced that makes it maybe not very helpful for would-be retirees today? Mm-hmm. So to, to be clear, the, the 4% rule provided a valuable contribution because people were making an even bigger mistake before that, which was Suppose I think the S&P 500, well, historically maybe averages like a compounded growth rate 7% after inflation. So I think to myself, well, I can plug that into a spreadsheet and every year my portfolio grows 7%. I can take 7% out. I never run out of money. I never even dip into my principal 7% as a safe withdrawal rate. And of course that's not true because there's market volatility. And so what the 4% rule was originally looking to do was incorporate that market volatility into the planning process, uh, looking at portfolios. It it calls for an aggressive asset allocation, generally 50 to 75% stocks. 50% is a good like baseline case study to look at, but but usually not going much under 50% stocks because with bonds, you can really get into trouble, especially with today's yield curve. <laughs> you can't, the, the entire tips yield curve of inflation adjusted real interest rates is negative right now. So there's no such thing as a 4% rule with bonds. But if you invest aggressively, you maintain that exposure to market growth and upside, then based on all the different rolling historical 30 year periods, yes, you can expect that strategy to work. But, and that's meant to bring in this idea of the market volatility and calibrating to say, well, in the worst case scenario, which with that 50-50 allocation, the years 1966 to 1995, you could have taken out 4%, sustained that with inflation growth, and run out of money precisely after 30 years. But in any other of these historical scenarios, you could have, well, if you use 4%, you would have had a lot left over at the end. You could have spent more, or otherwise, I think about half of the time, with a 4% rule in US historical data, the real purchasing power of your wealth, you'd have, if you started with a million dollars, you'd have a million dollars left at the end mm-hmm. and in nominal terms. So forgetting about the inflation and just looking at a million dollars, of course, a million dollars in the 1990s is a lot different than a million dollars in the 1960s after all the inflation of the 70s and 80s. But almost 96% of the time and almost all the historical scenarios you would have kept your nominal wealth intact after 30 years. So for people who are comfortable with that rule, that's the whole story. It worked historically. The the historical data has a lot of volatility. Of course, it might not work in the future. Past performance doesn't guarantee future returns or future performance, but we're comfortable with it (laughs) as as a good starting point. So what really got me started with looking at that was just this idea of, I, w- I had this data set and I was looking for uses for it. And I, I just tested, well, Bill Bengen, who originally developed that 4% rule and then the, the Trinity study later yeah, further amplified that the concept, uh, he was American. He was looking at US historical market returns. What if he was Italian or what if he was German or any number of these 20 countries with this data set going back to 1900? If I had invested in other countries, stocks and bonds with the 4% rule had worked. And it, it worked in the US and Canada. It did not work in the other 18 countries. And there, there was a lot of variation. Like if you put all the data together, so the all 20 countries, the whole historical environment with a 50-50 portfolio, the 4% rule worked about 68% of the time historically. So what we think of as a safe withdrawal rate that always works 100% of the time works about two thirds of the time around the world. And around the world, if you wanted a withdrawal rate that could have worked 90% of the time, you would have had to go down to 2.8%. So I thought that was compelling. It's basically the the US 20th century was a pretty unique century in world history in Canada too. (laughs) But uh, that may be an anomaly that if you wanna think about forward looking uh, returns for today's retirees, I think it makes sense to draw from a more typical international experience and not just extrapolate the the US historical data. That does become a philosophical question that some people just will reject that concept and say, no, who cares? Like like if if you look at Italian data, the 4% rule worked like 24% of the time, but Mm. who cares? We're We're not Italian. We're not investing in Italian stocks and bonds. I mean, we could have a globally diversified portfolio, 
But even with that, there was no 4% rule. It was more like three and a half percent because the U.S. was effectively pulled down by other countries' returns in a more diversified portfolio. Uh, but who cares if we invest in the U.S.? That's the only data we need to worry about. So then I started looking at these other perspectives and there's all these issues, basic assumptions with the 4% rule that aren't right or appropriate. And some of them you can actually use a higher withdrawal rate, but others a lower withdrawal rate. The idea that it ignores investment fees. It just assumes investors earn the index market returns. They, uh, they always rebalance every year. They never sort of panic or kind of sell after a market downturn or anything. 30 years is the right time horizon for them. Important as well, they don't pay taxes. It's either all coming out of a Roth account or if they're if it's out of an IRA, they're paying taxes from the 4%. Hmm. But with a taxable account, you have to pay ongoing taxes on portfolio growth and interest and dividends. So there's no 4% rule with a taxable portfolio. And uh, I think that's a lot of the highlights there. I feel like I'm missing something important, but uh, <laughs> uh, well, there's all these reasons that just, oh yeah, I mean, most important is the low interest rates. That, hmm. It's based on U.S. historical data, but interest rates are now lower than they ever were in the U.S. historical data. And that's not a controversial issue. The low bond yields means lower bond returns. So it's fine to say the 4% rule worked historically, but if we're now at a lower interest rate environment than we've ever experienced, that puts more strain on the 4% rule. And it's not that I think it won't work for someone retiring today. I just think that probably that, that 68% global success rate is probably more reflective of where we're at with interest rates than assuming it's going to have a hundred percent success rate. Yeah. You mean even in the U S <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just for a U.S. based investor, you know, some of the, um, the European countries you mentioned, Italy, Germany, et cetera, what was the failure, the higher failure rate that you found in the data due to like just lower or more volatile asset returns or lower interest rates or higher inflation or combination of all case by case, depending on the country. It's a combination. It's most countries had higher inflation rates, had lower average stock returns, plus higher stock volatility. I think Australia was the only country that actually had a higher average stock return than the US and less volatility. There might have been a couple other countries that had higher average stock returns, but also with more volatility. And then all the rest of the countries, lower returns, higher volatility. And yeah, interest rates. Well, this is all kind of nominal interest rates. So countries that had higher inflation experiences and especially any country that experienced any sort of hyperinflation really took a hit with the sustainable spending rate because the bonds would effectively become valueless mm. and you really then have to rely on the stocks to keep up with inflation over time. Uh, so yeah, those are, uh, there's also, sometimes people dismiss that international experience just saying, Yes, if you lost a world war, it will affect your sustainable withdrawal rate. And so that affects like Austria and Germany. Hmm. Well, Austria, World War I was one of the really bad scenarios. Germany with World War I, World War II, Japan after World War II. But that's not the whole story. There's also still plenty of countries where <laughs> there's nothing really wrong or it's the same like the stagnation of the 70s. The U.S. was lucky to keep 4% in place, but in other countries like Australia and so forth, that sort of situation led them to 3% or less. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not no obvious reason why one country had 4% and another had 3% other than the, the luck of the draw in terms of how those returns materialized. Got it. Um, so you've written before in the past that there's like no real evidence to suggest that interest rates will sort of like what is mean reversion? Like that there is some higher mean that they they'll, they can revert to. Um, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about like, you know, what are some of the forces that um, caused interest rates, at, at least at a high level um, for folks, you know, the non-economist crowd for um, why interest rates, uh, you know, dropped from, you know, their highs of, um, you know, 70s, 80s, uh, even 90s to, the the rock bottom rates they are now there are the, definitely these macro forces that occurred and and why there's you know no one should take solace in the uh, the hope that they're gonna rise back to you know anywhere near those levels any anytime soon because if you like if you look at the um like if you were just look at a, a benchmark rate like the Fed funds rate over a I don't know like a hundred uh, whatever seventy eighty year time frame 
and you just kind of squint and zoom out. It looks like an inverted V, right? It looked like it was low at first and it went up really high and then now mm-hmm. in, in modern times low. And uh, I was wondering if you could comment on some of the structural things that have happened that uh, have caused that and, and why, why, there's, why you believe there's no evidence that uh, there will be mean reversion. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the best predictor of future bond returns is today's interest rates and whether the interest rate will go up tomorrow or go down tomorrow is pretty much random. It's, it's really one of the best examples of a random walk. I, there could be some mean reversion over the longer term. I think the U.S. data shows that. So if you wanted to build into planning that interest rates may be higher 15 or 20 years from now, I think that's appropriate. But uh, the whole idea of just assuming maybe in a couple of years, interest rates are going to be higher. We've kind of had that experience now for almost 10 years where it's always been, okay, interest rates are getting lower, but they're definitely going to go back up. And that remains to be seen for the most part. It's, and it's really like a, a supply and demand issue. Going back to when I was a student in economics, the textbooks would usually talk about like a, the real natural interest rate, 2% real plus whatever inflation is, thinking that that's a reasonable number, like 2%. And for a long time, that was the real interest rate. Like I mentioned earlier now, though, the entire TIPS yield curve is negative. Mm-hmm. Real interest rates are negative. And I don't think there's any particular expectation that the real interest rate will necessarily get back up to 2%. Mm-hmm. And if it did, that, that could be <laughs> great for savers, but, but it's hard to know. If, if there's higher inflation, that will push up the nominal interest rate. But the real interest rate is really just driven by like supply and demand factors. And if there's a lot of savings, a lot of people wanting to purchase government debt, mm-hmm. that increased demand is, is going to push up the price, which pushes down the yield for the new investor. And that's the, the primary issue. The demand is strong for owning government debt relative to, now there's a lot, there's a large supply of government debt, but the, where they intersect with each other in terms of supply and demand is still keeping it high prices for debt, lower interest rates or lower yields for the investors in debt. You know, in, in, modern, in modern times, do you feel like American investors have, like, when I think about the big forces that cause this, it's like China buys a lot of U.S. debt. There's like American investors. What are the biggest, I guess, what are the biggest sources of demand that have um, kept the, the interest rates low? Well, right. I mean, it's, it's all these factors. I don't know a real clear breakdown between people getting into their peak earnings years and, and also into retirement. So individual savers versus governments versus pension funds which is part of the same process of, we have a large number of people approaching retirement ages who may wanna hold, who have more assets and wanna hold fixed income as a big part of that. And all those factors are at work, but I don't have a good sense about the, the specific breakdowns of like what may be most important. Okay, got it. Um, okay, so back when the pandemic was just getting going in April, 2020, um, you, you were quoted in the press saying, you know, the 4% rule is really more like maybe 2.4% rule. Uh, and that's if you're taking like a moderate amount of risk is 2.4% still a safe withdrawal number that you think best applies right now, given how much has changed even since early 2020 in terms of stock valuations doubling from their low, uh, inflation now reaching historical highs in, in some regard and, and interest rates, you know, soon to be rising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be a little bit higher than that now because that that was primarily driven by interest rates. I have a retirement dashboard on my website that I update somewhat infrequently, but it's really just then running a Monte Carlo simulation, looking at where the yield curve is, adding the historical risk premium to that, not even taking fees or not even some people will, I mean, with risk premiums, are stocks going to maintain their same performance relative to bonds or will they do even better or will they do even worse? Sometimes people have a concern that the risk premium may go down because valuations are so high. I don't even touch that. I just, Mm -hmm. I add the risk premium, historical risk premium to the current yield curve Mm -hmm. to get an average stock return, apply historical volatility, uh, apply historical volatility to the bonds, but based on the current yield curve. And when the 10-year treasury was down at like 0.6% or so back in April, 2020, that's the factor that was driving even lower numbers, that that 2.4, it could be more like a a 2.8 or somewhere in that ballpark if I were to rerun it today. But it's the the same concept. It's that was with a 50-50 allocation and looking for a 90% chance for success. 
And just small differences in returns have a huge impact on this. That's where if you're stock and you're doing a Monte Carlo simulation, you're looking at the probability of success. If you plug in historical average stock and bond returns, the 4% rule looks like it will work 95% of the time. But if you account for the fact that interest rates are quite a bit lower than their historical averages, and you center your market performance based on the, the lower starting point today, that 95% success rate can drop into this sort of like 60 to 70% success rate. And that's what's driving that particular uh, calculation. Got it. And you mentioned that, um, you, you know, whether it's back then or now, you know, 2.4 or 2.8, whatever the number is, uh, you mentioned, you know, that's if you're taking a moderate amount of risk. And I was wondering, like, what does moderate risk mean here? Like, what kind of asset allocation? Yeah, that number specifically was linked to 50-50 stock bonds. Got it. Okay. All right. So, um, you know, much of the retirement research is based on, you know, this traditional 30-year retirement. Like, you know, we were we were discussing this um, a few moments ago. And the, and the risk that your portfolio runs out before then. So heuristics like, you know, 2.4, 2.8% safe withdrawal uh, rate or a 10-year, you know, in the literature, a 10-year sequence of returns risk horizon that gets you 80% out of the woods or potentially utilizing, you know, rising equity glide path during the first decade of the sequence risk horizon. You know, all these things are kind of based on a traditional 30-year retirement horizon, mm -hmm. as I understand. But when it comes to early retirees who are, you know, maybe planning for up to two back-to-back 30-year retirements. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how do these heuristics change? Like how should early and would-be early retirees determine the safe withdrawal number that would get them through 60 years and not 30? And how long of a sequence risk horizon would get them through, you know, 80% out of the woods because, you know, I'm assuming it's going to maybe be longer than 10 years and how long they should spread out their rising equity glide path strategy to have sort of the same impact on their portfolio as your traditional 30-year retiree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the two points there, the first one about just the time horizon, that does affect the safe withdrawal rate. Naturally, the longer the time horizon that you're trying to plan for, the less you can spend because you have to stretch that money out for longer. Now it does the asymptote, like <laughs> at shorter horizons, the withdrawal rate can be quite a bit higher. As the time horizon gets longer, that withdrawal rate comes down. So if it's crossing 4% at 30 years, as you go off into like 40 or 50 years plus, it's gonna get somewhere in the ballpark of like three and a half, three and a third type of percent. If 4% was the right number for 30 years, if, if something less than 4% is the right number for 30 years, accordingly, you'd have to adjust down. But yeah, you, you'd have to take an additional haircut off, not a, a dramatic haircut, but like, like I said, if you thought 4% was right for 30 years, you probably, for like a more indefinite time horizon, three and a third, three, 3.33%, something like that would get you the same sort of performance. Now with historical data, you're eventually going to hit a constraint that <laughs> you don't have very many rolling historical 30 year periods since the 1920s. And also going back long enough, you're going to, the 1960s are where the worst case scenarios came in. But if you start backtracking too far, with looking at longer time horizons, you're gonna not you're gonna miss having the 1960s be the starting points for retirements. So that would then push the withdrawal rate up, but it's somewhat artificial because it's taking you out of those worst case scenarios. But but yeah, I mean, to the general answer to that point is you've got to look at making a further haircut to the withdrawal rate to support that longer time horizon. And then, but the other important point for like especially the early retirement community is there. I talk about some of these artificial assumptions in the 4% rule, and so far we've focused on issues that reduce the withdrawal rate. There's a very important issue that can increase the withdrawal rate, and that's the 4% rule assumes you never adjust your spending in response to the portfolio performance. You always keep doing that same inflation adjusted amount. Like The way you just defined it was correct. It's, it's an initial withdrawal rate, and then with the spending you get from that, you always adjust it. You never make any sort of revision to your spending. And that actually creates the most sequence risk. Trying to spend a constant amount from a volatile investment portfolio creates the most sequence risk. Uh, Dirk Cotton at the Retirement Cafe blog who, who passed away last year, but he was the first to note like the opposite of the 4% rule would be instead of 4% as the initial withdrawal rate, it would be Every year I'll spend 4% of the remaining account balance. Hmm. 
In that case, my withdrawal rate's always the same, but my spending amount's gonna jump all over the place. That strategy has zero sequence risk. Just like if you invest a lump sum, the order of returns doesn't matter. You'll always have the same account balance at the end. And if you use something like that, you can use a dramatically higher withdrawal rate because you don't have sequence of returns risk. So for that um, like fire community, they really have to be thinking about just having more flexibility in their plan, whether, and it's really flexibility about the distribution from the investment portfolio. So whether that means being able to cut spending somewhat if there's a big market downturn or whether that means having the flexibility to pick up some part-time work to reduce the distribution need during a market downturn, that would be two practical ways to help manage the sequence of returns risk mm-hmm. and to still maintain like a, a higher withdrawal rate, but just with the caveat that you might have to make some cuts to that on, from time to time as you go through that longer retirement horizon. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, if I so, there's definitely different levers that you can pull, like like you mentioned. Maybe you can do some part time work or consulting or something like that, or or just link the withdrawal rate on a year by year basis. Um, for for a retiree who doesn't have um, who who like wants to truly retire, like an early retiree who wants to truly retire um, without having to worry about getting going back to get a job. Maybe like their profession isn't one that easily allows for um, transient in and out of the workforce, uh, but whatever the case, um, and they really just want to live off their portfolios, and they don't want to, like in years when the return is negative, they don't want it to be zero or contribute back to the portfolio, uh, uh, so to speak, because, um, you know, say linking a constant percentage wouldn't allow for any withdrawal in those years. Um and they also, you know, are convinced that the four percent rule is is you know perhaps uh, not a, not as useful for for modern times. It's probably going to be lower. Are there tools or like basically how can a person like that um, uh, calculate the um, the sixty year horizon safe withdrawal number? Uh, you know, maybe play around with their own simulations a little bit uh, to get some confidence on what specific safe withdrawal rate number would would actually work for them is there is there are there like online tools that exist for this and it's still the 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 safe withdrawal rate without any spending flexibility so you're it's it maybe maybe there's a little bit of um flexibility in that like but it has to be more than zero because you can't like not live on nothing um so maybe there's a floor and a ceiling i mean you've talked about this in in um some i think maybe interviews or articles you've written uh, where maybe it's linked, but there's a floor and a ceiling. That that might be possible, but it's got to be positive every year because you know you got to eat, mm-hmm. you got to live, et cetera. Yeah, the, this is an area where like most of the commercial tools aren't all that helpful because they don't have the capacity to allow variable spending that uh, responds to portfolio performance. So I've I've written programs to do all that sort of analysis, but I don't have any like. <laughs> user interface for other people to be able to use it. It's just code on my computer. <laughs> but I, the way I, I call I have something called the pay rule, which is how, so if you have variable spending, you have to have a new way to measure downside risk that's not just depleting the investment portfolio. Because with some rules, you never technically def, def, uh, deplete the investment portfolio. Your spending might get very low. Like if you're always spending 4% of what's left, technically in the computer, you might have one penny left, but you're still carving out. <laughs> You don't ever hit zero, but you, for all practical terms, you're not enjoying your lifestyle. Uh, so you just calibrate here's, and that's how I, I do it actually on the retirement dashboard on my website. I have a few, a few variable spending strategies and I don't define the results in terms of hitting zero at the end of the time horizon. It's in terms of, I'm willing to accept a 90% chance that my remaining wealth drops to 10% of its initial level in inflation adjusted terms after 30 years. And that lets you compare different spending, variable spending strategies with the same amount of downside risk to calibrate between them. So that would be the kind of approach someone can take. And then that's, I don't have any commercial tool about this, but that's really how I started looking at this. And I've written about the variable spending strategies. You sort of look at the distribution of how does the spending evolve in different market environments? How does remaining wealth evolve in different market environments? 
what is the downside risk? How low might spending go? How low might the wealth balance go? And, and sort of just judge from there what looks like an acceptable sort of path for spending in terms of, does it tend to rise over time? Does it tend to go down over time? Uh, how much volatility is there on a year to year basis? And that, that's kind of then you've got that flexibility to decide what sort of spending strategy looks the most favorable to you. And if you build in the, the constant inflation adjusted spending, your withdrawal rate might be a lot lower than if you built in a variable spending strategy where it, most of the time it allowed for more spending, but there could be some scenarios where the spending at some point might drop below what the constant inflation adjusted spending strategy would provide. I see. Okay, I gotcha. Um, for the constant inflation adjusted spending strategy, is there like, a, I don't know, is there like an asymptote curve that folks can reference to say, well, if I believe the number really is 2.8% for 30 years, then for 60 years, uh, just looking at the table, I, it should be like 2.2 or something like that. Is there is there like a basically a heuristic that people can use if, if they were using the constant inflation adjusted strategy? Yeah, you can make up that heuristic. And I've plotted things like that before. This is going back like on my blog, probably like 2011, 2012, and those might not even be available anymore. But then also in, in my second book, the How Much Can You Spend in Retirement? I know I at least plotted that curve for the historical data going to, I think, at least, well, either 40 or 50 years um, but yeah, I, I know I've done that. I, I specifically remember making that kind of curve with Monte Carlo simulations for at least 60 years. So I, I can't speak to the specific numbers of it. And it would also depend on what you're assuming about the market returns and volatilities. But yeah, you definitely do see that asymptotic effect of whatever it was at 30 years, it's going to just have to be a little bit less than that. Got As it. the time horizon gets longer, I'm sorry, it's hard to. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. It depends I know. on I, the I, assumptions I, about market returns too. So of course, just one <laughs> of course. for it. <laughs> I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm just, um, uh, if you happen to have any any um, any quick tips on this, that that that's that's was really um, mostly the the gist of it. Um, I'd love to also like this is kind of like this the other side of the same coin a little bit, but um, you know, there's a. Uh, I think both you've written about the, uh, this, and I've also um, read this elsewhere around the um, the sequence risk horizon. But, you know, on a traditional thirty year retirement being about ten years to get you eighty percent confident that you won't run out. Um, how should f early retirees, again, who are potentially planning for up to two of these things, two back to back thirty year retirements, uh, be thinking about calibrating that ten year number, that ten year mental shortcut number, to a sixty year horizon? How, like, are there um, heuristics that investors can use to make that calibration? Or is it, again, you know, like the details matter and modeling matters? Yeah, I, I mean, one thing I can say about that, but yeah, that's right. I've, I've done simulations where if you're planning for 30 years, the cumulative market performance in the first 10 years explains 80% of the final outcome. So you, you really kind of have a sense of whether you're going to be able to spend at a higher level or a lower level with what happens in the first 10 years. Now, at, with a longer time horizon, I, I've never run that same calculation for longer time horizons, but I can say the, because the longer time horizon requires a lower withdrawal rate, that's another way to get less sequence risk. With a lower withdrawal rate, you're less likely to get into these sort of death spirals where <laughs> a market downturn pushes that current withdrawal rate that much higher, which gets you in that much worse shape where it becomes harder and harder to overcome that hurdle. Mm -hmm. And that leads you on the spiral down to zero. So with a longer time horizon, you now have a lower withdrawal rate, then you have less sequence risk. So I, I think that 80% number would come down for the longer time horizon for that reason, not significantly down, but at least it's, it's not going to be greater. It's going to be less to some extent. Oh, interesting. Oh, I, I, I get it. So in, the intuition is that because your, your safe withdrawal rate number uh, would come down, then your, the horizon might not actually extend beyond 10 years. It might actually be the same and might even have more explanatory power. Is that correct? Well, that, yeah, that, that first 10 years, Oh, well, yeah, there's going to be an offsetting factor that now that you have more and more years, there's more, well, it's because you have a lower withdrawal rate, it's easier for a market gain 
after 10 years to have a more positive impact on your sustainability. So the first 10 years would be less important. Yeah. Yeah. And then back to this whole issue of that's assuming the constant inflation adjusted spending. If you're flexible with your spending and if you can make cuts after the market downturns, there's less sequence risk. So the first 10 years would not be as important. Right. Where to the extreme with a, the constant percentage strategy, there is no sequence risk at all. So the first 10 years of a 30 year retirement would explain because it's 33% of the length, it's 33% of the outcome. Got it. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of what, what we're seeing in the market currently, you know, stock valuations have doubled since their like early pandemic lows. Uh, Cape ratio is really high right now. It's, I think it's around 40. Uh, that means the inverse capes are at two and a half percent. Do you, do you worry that asset prices are overvalued right now? And um, if so, are there asset allocation changes that you think investors should consider given, you know, current macro trends, including the inflation that's going on and the trajectory of near zero interest rates that are, poised to now start rising? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. And that's one of the, when I started doing this type of retirement planning research with historical data, that was something I, I looked into of value in the historical data up until actually this really all started to fall apart in the, the mid 1990s when Robert Schiller wrote his article about this, I think it was published in 1997. That more or less corresponds to where what I'm about to say stopped working. <laughs> but in the past, high valuation levels linked pretty clearly to lower subsequent stock market returns and lower valuation levels uh, linked to higher subsequent stock market returns. And so if you just play around with the historical data, you can see a strategy that would lower your stock allocation when market valuations are high or increase your stock allocation when market valuations are low would give you a better outcome than keeping the same fixed asset allocation throughout. But again, all that sort of stuff would be telling you to have a low stock allocation since the like 1996 or 1997, with a brief exception in 2009 as part of the financial crisis. You temporarily got the CAPE ratio into a more historical normal range where you could have had your normal stock allocation. Otherwise, you spent the last 25 years with a lower stock allocation. So. I don't want to use that kind of approach to impact my asset allocation anymore. I just think of it more in terms of to be safe when market valuations are high, you should expect a lower future stock market return. It always makes me nervous when people are assuming their portfolios are going to give them eight to 12% returns, but the 12% number was never correct because that's a simple arithmetic average on the S and P 500, not, mm a compounded growth rate, which is what matters to a long-term investor. But the S&P 500 compounded historically at maybe 8 to 10%. I would be incredibly nervous about using such an aggressive number in this high valuation environment. That, and that's really, it's not that I would change my asset allocation, but I would just not be comfortable retiring or feeling that I'm financially independent unless my plan worked with a lower assumed market return than that sort of historical number. What would be the uh, a better assumed you know, market return assumption presently in your view? Well, then, then I'm just this, so this is a per, my personal number and not necessarily advice or recommendations for anyone else, but I'm assuming a, a real return of two and a quarter percent. And I still have inflation at 2%. That doesn't make as big of a difference other than impacting things like social security taxation and so forth. So basically with 2% inflation, two and a quarter percent real returns, I'm assuming 4.25%. The inflation would increase that number, but again, it's the real interest, real return or real interest rate that, that matters the most. And that's because I do still have a longer time horizon where I'm not going to have to be withdrawing from my portfolio. If I was closer to really being dependent on my portfolio to sustain my standard of living, I would not be comfortable with a 2.25% real return right now. I'd want to be getting that closer to, to zero, which is still higher than the risk-free rate with tips. But at some point, those numbers get so low that it's very discouraging. But I'm, again, <laughs> that's where I'd 
looking at numbers more like zero to two, I mean, two and a half percent for, is, is this a for, real return. That's all I'd really be comfortable discussing. Is this for uh, um, what type of weighting between stocks and bonds or is this that, all, all stock? Well, that's, that's pretty aggressive in stock. That's I'm primarily thinking in terms of stocks. With bonds, it's, it's not so difficult. You just look at the yield curve. Mm-hmm. If I had all my money in bonds, I'd look at the tips yield curve or the treasury yield curve, and that would be you know 2% for a 30-year treasury or negative. I don't remember exactly where we are right now, but uh, it's negative something for the 30-year tips yield. Yeah, because right now it does feel like there's this kind of asset allocation dilemma. Like it's risky to invest in stocks because valuations are sky high. It's risky to invest in bonds because interest rates are near zero and are clearly going to start rising this year. And anyway, the only direction they can go is up. It feels risky to invest in real estate, at least residential right now, because home prices have soared to like truly staggering levels <laughs> over the last couple of years um, because of pandemic buying and rock bottom interest rates. And it's risky to hold cash because inflation's burning it up. So like where can the investor turn given the sort of seeming dangers at every turn. Um, and it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, given that you don't know the future, can no one can predict the future, um, pr- perhaps the best assumption is just to expect persistently lower risk-adjusted returns going forward. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. That's really the approach I take, at least with my own personal planning. <laughs> Make sure your plan can work with all these kind of buffers built in and and having a lower than average assumed return, which is, I mean, it's not that I'm so weird with these low numbers. If you're using any sort of Monte Carlo based financial plan, if you're targeting a success rate higher than 50%, the software doesn't report this to you, but you're effectively assuming a much lower than average fixed return as well, because there is a fixed return that corresponds to the success rate you're targeting. If, if you want a 90% success rate for your plan, you might also be assuming like a three or 4% overall fixed rate of return. Mm. So it, it may not be all that different. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about annuities briefly. Um, you know, you've written before about how you can you can purchase an annuity to supplement retirement income, which can then also help you perhaps more confidently shift your asset allocation to be stock heavier if you wanted to, um, if you were so risk in, uh, risk inclined, I guess. Um, I was curious, I, I found the strategy pretty interesting. And I was curious, like if there's an annuity type that you feel like suits the needs of most investors for this purpose, like a simple fixed annuity, or is it really highly individual specific based on individual needs. There's no really general suitable annuity type that you'd recommend for the masses. Yeah, it it really is individual specific. And so I, some of the research I've done recently is about retirement income styles and identifying four different styles, total returns, investing time segmentation, income protection, which is more like simple income annuities and then risk wrap, which would be more like a a deferred variable annuity with a lifetime income benefit. And I think all four styles are legitimate and I'm agnostic about what people find most appropriate. I think everyone's gonna have a style that will resonate best with them. I do notice that a lot of the online community, especially like with the, the FIRE community, as well as other online discussion boards about finance are very heavily tilted towards the total return strategy, which is, using like like the 4% rule style, 50 to 75% stocks and just spending sustainably from an investment portfolio. And they really viewed that as the superior strategy for everyone and hmm. that you don't need annuities because they're either too expensive or I mean, whatever the, the reasons are. But uh, uh, I, I, I disagree with that point. I think total returns is a viable strategy, but also strategies that may incorporate risk pooling are also viable strategies. And that what I think is really commonly misunderstood is the power of risk pooling through an annuity is actually quite competitive with the stock market. Hmm. That if you think about, there's three basic ways you could fund retirement. The starting point is you could just use bonds and then you can't spend very much, but you at least could build out like a laddered bond portfolio to cover your spending needs each year. If you, then you have two options to spend more than that. One is the diversified investment portfolio. And then 
you keep your fingers crossed that you get risk premium, that stocks will outperform bonds and that you can spend at a higher level. The other approach is you can use risk pooling through an annuity. You get an underlying bond-like return through the insurance company's general account. And then if you happen to be longer lived, you receive these credits or subsidies from the risk pool. Those who don't live as long, some of their premium subsidizes those who live longer, which in hindsight, you only want to be part of that if you live longer. But since you don't know, everyone in that risk pool can spend at a higher level than they could with bonds alone. And I think that a lot of these total returns advocates just believe stocks are ultimately giving you more outperformance than annuity risk pooling. And I, I disagree with that statement. So I, I think that the risk pooling from annuities is a viable way to also sustain a retirement spending goal. And whether that involves using a simple income annuity like a single premium immediate annuity, whether it's a fixed index annuity with a lifetime income benefit, or whether it's a variable annuity or now the newer, the, the registered index linked annuities with lifetime income benefits. Any of those are, are options and it's really what's best for the individual. Like my own personal style is more risk wrap, which is I'm comfortable with stock market growth. I'm comfortable investing in the market, but I somehow am not comfortable staking my entire retirement outcome on the stock market. I'd like to have some sort of backdrop or guardrail or protection on that. And that's kind of what like a variable annuity with a living benefit can do. You can still invest for upside in the market, but you have downside protections so that your spending won't fall below a particular level. Now that downside spending level is probably lower than you get with a SPIA or a DIA, a single premium immediate annuity or a deferred income annuity. And so if your style is more income protection, you're probably, you're not as comfortable with the stock market. So you might appreciate more the simple income annuity, but at the end of the day, it really depends more on, on what's your style, how will you allocate the assets, and yeah, as your question also brought up and I didn't really mention yet, as much as possible, I wanna think about protected income streams from annuities as being part of your bond allocation. Hmm. So to the extent you can draw from bonds to use the annuities. And that, that's another point where <laughs> the, the crowd that says annuities are always bad, they're always implicitly comparing stocks to annuities. And that's not really how I'm thinking about it. It's no, in, instead of whatever your stock bond mix is, draw some of your bonds into the annuity and then use a higher stock allocation with what's left so that your overall stock holdings from as a percentage of your household balance sheet, not just the percentage of the investment portfolio, that stays the same. You still have the same dollar value in stocks. It's just, it might look like you have a higher stock allocation because part of your bonds were sent over to the annuity that doesn't show up on the portfolio statement. And to the extent you can do that, I think risk pooling is a powerful way to help support a retirement spending stream as well. I see. So if, if you wanted to have a, if you, I guess, taken to, to the extreme, if you wanted to have a hundred percent stock allocation in just um, your non-annuity investment portfolio, then if, I, if I'm hearing correctly, it sounds like you would just convert your entire bond holdings into annuities and, and then you could, yeah, go wild. Have, you know, if you really want to, uh, have 100% stocks, you can do that and still, um, you know, benefit from uh, from the downside protection um, from doing that. Is that right? Yeah. And that goes back to, I wrote an article about the efficient frontier for retirement income, where I just looked at all these combinations of stocks and bonds and income annuities and so forth. And when it comes to meet a spending goal, so there, I mean, you may hold bonds for like an emergency fund and that sort of thing. But when it comes specifically to I want to spend $40,000 every year for the rest of my life. What should I do to achieve that? I found that the efficient frontier for retirement income was stocks and income annuities instead of stocks and bonds. Hmm. So, it, and then, well, what's the mix? It's really just a matter of how much do you want to spend, allocate that portion to the simple income annuity, and then keep the remainder in stocks. Hmm. And that gave you better protection to meet spending needs throughout retirement while also giving you a larger average legacy as you, uh, especially if you live beyond your life expectancy compared to a stock bond portfolio. Got it. That's super interesting. Um, the, the la I, I don't know if this is going to open up a can of worms or if uh, uh, this would be a good uh, a question to close on, but you know, you mentioned these retirement styles, retirement income styles, and I was wondering if you could um, 
give us the overview or just kind of the, the brief explainer on what the the four are and how, how they differ. I mean, we, we kind of got a little bit of it just in the discussion, but um, I was wondering if you could kind of explain um, uh, in, in a bit more detail, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is based on, on research I did with Alex Margia and also just based on, I've been writing for a long time about how there's two schools of thought for retirement and I call them probability-based and safety-first. And they disagree with all these different issues about like, is there a safe withdrawal rate? Do stocks become less risky as you hold on to them for longer? Is there a role for annuities and so forth? And just extending that, we read all this material about retirement planning, whether it's written for households or written for financial advisors, whatever we could find. And we were looking for like things that seem to be distinct factors that might help explain how you think about or approach retirement. And then we came up with eight different factors and the original research was with the my retirement researcher website, where we had 1500 participants help us evaluate the questions and then actually take the questionnaire. And then we did something called exploratory factor analysis, which just lets the data speak in terms of trying to understand, are there questions that provide distinct factors? And from that, we found two factors seem to be really important. There are four more supporting factors that could help tell the story. And then the other two really didn't seem to be all that uh, worthwhile to, to look at further. But with those two primary factors, we could create a matrix that it was really interesting how it explains basic retirement styles. And so <laughs> what these two primary factors are, one of them we did name the, the probability-based versus safety first. So probability-based is I'm comfortable relying on market growth. I'm comfortable with the risk premium, with the idea of stocks will outperform bonds, and I can reasonably sustain spending with that in my retirement. Versus if I'm safety first, I really want some sort of contractual protection. And there's nothing that's 100% truly safe, but at least if I have a contractual protection for my income, I feel more comfortable than if I'm having to rely on the stock market to, to provide that funding. So that's probability-based safety first. The other is optionality versus commitment, which is not necessarily one we would have kind of picked thinking that's going to be what's important, hmm. but the data just told us it was important. And hmm. so if you have more of an optionality orientation, there's a sense you really want to keep your options open as much as possible. You don't want to commit to any sort of strategy. You want to have flexibility. You want to make changes. You want to respond to new circumstances and so forth. Versus if you have a commitment orientation, you're comfortable committing to a strategy that you know will work for you, that you know is going to solve your lifetime income need. It may give you less flexibility to make changes and to respond to new circumstances. But at the same time, you can really check this off your to-do list to some extent. You, you've committed to a strategy that you know will work. So that gives us now, you plot probability base versus safety first, you plot optionality versus commitment. We then have four combinations and those become the four styles. So total returns investing, that's the 4% rule, the systematic withdrawals, the I'm comfortable with the stock market. That's somebody who's probability-based, comfortable relying on market growth, and optionality-oriented, wants to keep their options open. So that sort of systematic spending strategy from an investment portfolio makes sense for those individuals. And that, that there's a natural correlation, I should say, as well. People who are more, more optionality-oriented are also more probability-based on average. And then, so conversely, the opposite of that is income protection. People who are more safety first want contractual protections and more commitment oriented. And those two factors tend to correlate together. That's income protection. That's the idea of building a floor so that my essential spending needs are covered by lifetime income protections, like with simple income annuities. I first build a floor of lifetime income and then I invest the rest for upside beyond that. That's the income protection strategy. It gives you the contractual protections, you're committing to a strategy and you're off on your way. Now, the other two quadrants, it's, what's really interesting about this is both of those strategies have always been described, well, they're both relatively new, at least since the 1980s, and they've been described more in behavioral terms. Hmm. That here's a way to meet behavioral preferences for people who don't have the natural correlations. So the first of these would be, if you're safety first, you want contractual protections, 
but you're also optionality oriented. You wanna keep your options open. Those are a little bit contradictory. <laughs> With a contract, you don't always have options or at least there's some limits there. But that's what time segmentation or bucketing does. That's mm. this idea of, I use bonds and holding individual bonds to maturity to cover my short-term expenses. Mm -hmm. I get my contractual protections that way, but then I, I have this growth portfolio or this growth bucket for longer-term expenses. And that's where I get my optionality. Mm. And that might make me feel comfortable with the strategy on a behavioral basis. And then the other one, it's this world of these like deferred annuities, the variable annuities, the uh, some index annuities and so forth, but with lifetime income protections, which has all have also been described behaviorally for people who weren't comfortable with an income annuity that takes away the liquidity and doesn't give you any upside potential. And that's so, the willing to commit, but want probability based outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're probability based. You're comfortable with market growth, but you also, you want to commit to a strategy. Mm -hmm. And then with these secondary factors as well, if you're either income protection or risk wrap, that's the, the name for this deferred annuity world, you have more of a backloading preference. You're more worried about outliving your money. You, you wanna protect your future self versus if you are more of a total returns or time segmentation style, you actually have a front-loading preference. You'd rather enjoy your retirement in the short-term because you know you're healthy and alive and you don't know what the future will bring and you feel okay about having to make cuts later on if necessary to get the most satisfaction out of your retirement. So back to risk wrap, you're commitment oriented, but you are probability based, you're comfortable relying on market growth, but you also have this, this backloading preference. Hmm. And that helps to explain the, the behavioral aspect of a variable annuity, which is you still get the liquidity for the contract. You don't have to annuitize it and, and give it up. You can still invest for some upside growth, not as much as with an unprotected portfolio, but at the same time, you now also, you, you have a lifetime income protection so that you know if markets do really bad, your spending can only fall so low before you, uh, you hit that, you have that guarantee in place to protect you. Got so it. that's where that style, yeah, that's the risk wrap style. Okay, that, that's super helpful framework. And it sounds like the FIRE community, you have found kind of, uh, uh, gravitates toward total return. And I was just curious in the survey, it sounds like you ran a survey um, and collected data from sort of the, the investing public. W where were the distributions in the quadrants? Mm -hmm. So we've, we've been able to, we did it with the retirement researcher, my website first, and then now with a nationally re representative sample of the country. And the even within the retirement researcher community, there's more of a tilt towards total returns. It was more, it, it actually kind of somewhat balances out, but like upper 30% in the total returns, uh, lower 30% in the income protection, and then the uh, time segmentation, the risk wrap each had around like 15, 16%. Mm. Uh, so there was a tilt towards total returns but I think if, if you gave this to some of the other online communities, you'd get an even stronger tilt towards total returns. Mm -hmm. And then what we found with the, the U.S. population as a whole, there's actually more of a tilt towards income protection, that it's more like the upper 30% for income protection, lower 30% for total returns, mm -hmm. and then still the same kind of 15, 16% range for the uh, time segmentation and the risk wrap strategies. Got it. Uh, well, Wade, this has been super insightful. Very, very uh, interesting conversation. Uh, I, I've, I've really enjoyed um, our discussion. Where can folks find out more about you, your research, what you're up to, all that good stuff? Well, sure. Uh, yeah, it was my pleasure as well to talk to you. And so I, I did have, my, my life work was published in September, <laughs> the Retirement Planning Guidebook. It's the fourth book I've written, but it's actually the book I was always trying to write. And the, the books that came out before it were really chapters for that book got so long that I spun them off as independent books. So the retirement planning guidebook, it, it's available on Amazon or other leading retailers. And beyond that, my personal website is retirementresearcher.com. And you, you can sign up there and take a, a weekly, uh, get on the weekly email list every Saturday morning. If you're interested in taking the, the RISA, that's the retirement income style awareness, there's a link to it on page 15 of the book, the re retirement planning guidebook. 
or otherwise also if you, it's not, you're not gonna find a link there yet, but you can go to RISA profile, R-I-S-A profile.com to learn more about that retirement income style awareness. And we just had an article, the, the research article published in the Retirement Management Journal in December. So that we're excited about that. And otherwise retirement researcher. And then I'm also a professor at the American College of Financial Services to educate financial advisors. So that may be less relevant. I'm not sure, or you may have a mix of listeners between financial services. So I am the RICP program director. That's our retirement income certified professional designation. Awesome. We'll, we'll definitely link to all that stuff in the show notes and uh, look forward to sharing this with the audience. I think it'll be um, a really insightful uh, episode. Thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast and uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you. It's my pleasure. All right. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's guest interview and got a lot of value and insights from it. If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically sent to you. Would love for you to not miss any episodes because the Hack Your World podcast has a mix of action-packed solo shows where I walk you through specific strategies and tactics step-by-step, as well as guests who share their expertise about specific areas of personal finance, and finally, profile interviews of business owners who are trying to turn their side hustles into fully financially self-sustaining passive income streams. We break down exactly what they do, how they do it, and how much they're earning. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of that great content. Also, would love if you could help me out and take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a podcast review. It helps to support this podcast and it helps other people who are looking for topics like this find the podcast. And I really appreciate it if you could take a minute and just leave an honest review. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Hack Your Wealth podcast with Andrew Chen. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and check out hackyourwealth.com for all our latest content.